Well, good evening, and again, thank you for joining us on our Christmas Eve Eve service. And of course, we have many kids with us here this evening, and so parents, it's totally okay if your kid squirms, farts, burps, whatever. Um, I'm up here, so it doesn't affect me, uh, but please don't feel pressure to have to do anything about it. If for whatever reason you want to take a step out, uh, the service is on the video in the, in the lobby as well, so you can watch it out there, but please don't feel, feel like you have to. Um, my, my wife and I, Christina, are celebrating 12 years of marriage in a few months, and... Uh, yeah, and when we got married, she had it in her head that she was supposed to cook a, like, um, a, a dinner, like a meat, of a, a vegetable, and a side for every meal, or every dinner, every single night, which is fine, and uh, a couple, I had never said that, and a couple of years into marriage, she was complaining one night because she didn't like, have everything ready, and I said something to the effect of like, oh, I don't care. And uh, she didn't realize, but for many years in our marriage, she had this pressure in her mind thinking that she had to do this every single night, night because it really mattered to me. And she was, I don't know, more relieved or angry that, she, that it took multiple years for her to figure out she didn't have to do that, right? She thought it really mattered, and then she realized that it didn't. And then finally, that's why I got the Blackstone, if you guys were here, because then we stopped making dinner altogether. That's uh, just a joke. Uh, but anyway, uh, here, here's why I share that story. If you've been with us at least these last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at this series called Is Christmas Unbelievable? And we've looked at things like, was Jesus a real person? Are the Gospels a reliable source of history and the importance and the meaning of the virgin birth? And so tonight, as we uh, inch ever closer to celebrating the birth of Jesus, as we celebrate Christmas, I want to take just a few minutes and see what difference all of this makes and what it means if the story of Jesus isn't true, or rather put it this way, taking a few minutes to just look at this question, does Christmas really matter? Does Christmas really matter? Now, the presents are cool, the family, friends, all the holiday traditions that you might have, uh, those are fine, and they might make us have things to look forward to, but in the grand scheme of things, as great as those things are, does it actually matter if, the, if the, what the reason for this season is about didn't actually happen? You know, it's interesting, there's an Israeli historian by the name of Yuval Noah Harari, and he tells the story of humanity from the beginning in his book called The Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, just, you know, how, how we got here, the, the history of humankind. And what's interesting is Harari, uh, like many in his field, perhaps, reject the claims of Christianity. He is a non-theist, he doesn't believe in God, and yet even in his book, he nonetheless acknowledges its influence. In fact, he argues that our deepest moral beliefs that we have today in the world, for example, our beliefs like in basic human rights uh, and rights and equality that, that women are just as valuable as men, all of these things that we kind of champion and fight for in our culture today, he says that they are not self-evident truths, but rather they are actually biblical beliefs. In fact, he says it this way. This will be a quote on the screen. He says, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? As far as we can tell from a pure, purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan. <clears throat> Hence, any meaning that, we, that people ascribe to their lives is just a 
delusion. Now, of course, he would say he still appreciates and he likes uh, that we try to pursue good things, but the reality uh, that, that these, the meaning that we assign to our lives don't act, doesn't actually inherently exist. In fact, many non-theistic, that is non-God-believing philosophers will argue that your sense that you are you, that I am me, is a delusion too. Really, all of this is simply a, a chemical processes in our brains trying to make sense of and give meaning and value to our lives. And so, in the grand scheme of things, what this means, if God does not exist and this Christmas season is nothing more than presents and lights, is that your suffering, while you and I might not like it, ultimately in the end, it doesn't really matter, certainly not from a cosmic perspective. Your joys, while you might like them, they don't really matter. Your accomplishments or your lack thereof, while you might like, like or dislike certain things that have happened in your life, they actually in the end do not really matter. Nothing actually really matters. We create this mirage of meaning in our lives, but when our brains stop working, the meanings that we have created are all done. In fact, there's a Netflix movie uh, called The Dig. It's a, it's a true story. It's a dramatized event based on the true story of an archaeologist by the name of Basile Brown, and he excavates this extraordinary ancient Anglo-Saxon site on a land owned by a woman named Edith Perry. Uh, and in the, in the course of the digging process, uh, Edith discovers uh, that she is dying. And so there's this scene in the movie where she is feeling the weight of her own morality and the investigation into the centuries-old archaeological remains at the site leaves her in tears. And at one point, she and Basil have this exchange. She says this, Edith says, we die, we die and decay, we don't live on. And then Basil responds to her by saying this, I'm not sure I agree. From the first human handprint on a cave wall, we're part of something continuous. So we don't really die. Now, to be frank, this is the kind of things that we have to, that we must tell ourselves to dull the pain of nothinglessness, of meaninglessness, of our existence. Because in the end, if this is all that there is, Edith is right, we don't live on, and it doesn't matter. Any meaning, again, we ascribe to our lives is just a delusion, a mere chemical process in our brains. And so if this is true, if, Christian, if Christmas doesn't really matter, and this is all there is, and God does not exist, then Harari is right when he says that our identity and human rights in and of themselves are simply figments of our fertile imaginations. That's what he calls them. And so let's just say for a second that Harari is right in his assessment, and I think he is in his conclusions. And historians would also agree that many of our moral building blocks in our societies today come from Christian thought, and many historians will agree to that, whether or not they are Christian. But things like caring for the marginalized, uh, where women have value, it's really fascinating if you look at how Christianity has spread throughout world history, is that everywhere Christianity came from, the value of women exponentially de- uh, increased. In fact, uh, Christina and I were having friends with some good, uh, dinner with some, having friends, having dinner with some good friends the other night. One of my best friends and him and his wife, are, their parents are from the country of India. And we were even talking to them about adoption. And, had, and she said that one day if they adopt, uh, they are interested in adopting a, a baby girl from India because girls in India are not treated the same as boys. This is a predominantly non-Christian 
culture, and so of course you would expect to see these things. Uh, these things like caring for the poor, uh, doing, fighting for the, uh, those who cannot fight for themselves. These are all claims that Jesus has made. Hospitals, uh, the sciences, all these things are heavily influenced by Christianity and Christian thought. And so what it can be tempting to do, in fact, I read some articles about this this week. It can be tempting, well, why don't we keep the values of human rights and dignity and progress and scientific discovery and all these things and just take the claims of Jesus out. And certainly it's like uh, maybe, you know, the, the Jenga game, right? Now, now, since the foundation has been built, we can just take a couple of blocks, but keep building higher and higher. Of course, the question for us is the Jesus, is Jesus more like a Jenga game? The foundation that he created, is it like that where you can just take a few blocks out, but since you have the foundation, you're good? Or is it more like a linchpin in the grenade that if you take him out, it all goes away. In fact, I would argue it would be the latter, that it is more like a lynch pig in a grenade because you don't just lose the basis for morality. You don't just lose the foundation for even saying all humans have rights if you take Jesus out. You also lose meaning itself. And as we mentioned, if, if there is no meaning, your suffering, while you may not like it, doesn't really matter. It points to nothing. Your joys and your accomplishments, while you like them, mean nothing and will mean nothing in a very short period of time. It's always a fun experiment to talk about how no one will remember you 100 years from now. Uh, there's probably very few of us in this room or watching online that can name even one of our great-grandparents. And this is what is going to come of us. And in fact, if this is all there is, even things as horrific as genocide don't really matter because the people who have died from genocide are dead and it's over for them. And those who committed genocide, well, nothing really happens to them at the end. In the end, it is all meaningless. If I haven't encouraged you enough this Christmas evening, I'll say one more thing. Uh, there is a well-known atheist philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. He was around uh, in the 1900s. You might be familiar with him. He was a German philosopher. He was an atheist. And one of the things he was very famous for is claiming that God is dead. And he studied and wrote a lot about nihilism. And he taught that without God, we are alone. We are exposed to a natural universe devoid of the comforting ideas of a God-given purpose to things and to life and to meaning itself. And so according to Nietzsche, this is the state of nihilism. It's the idea that life has no meaning and life has no value, and this idea cannot be avoided. We must go through it as frightening and as lonely as it may be. We can't just kind of think, well, I don't really know what happens. I'm just going to pretend it doesn't all matter, or maybe there's going to be something. He's saying, no, we have to confront this reality that this is all there is. This is what happens if you take Jesus out of it. It's not just the building blocks are there. It's meaning of life itself. This is what we are left with if Christmas doesn't really matter, and it's just about the lights and the presence. Now, of course, the good news for us, the reason why we gather and we worship not just on Christmas, but on Sundays and throughout the year, is because we believe that Jesus is the God-man who came into time to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and has pointed, painted a drastically different picture for you and for me. Uh, here's what the Gospel of John says. I'm going to read a few verses from John this evening. They'll all be on the screen, so you can just read along. If you want to open your Bible, you can as well be in John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, uh, the Gospels or the accounts of 
Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and his teachings. And the Gospel of John does not begin with the birth narrative of Jesus. So Matthew and Luke talk about how Jesus' birth, but John, uh, echoing and writing and, and commentating on Genesis chapter 1, starts in the very beginning of creation. And here's what John says in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, if you continue to read in John chapter 1, you will find uh, that the word that John is talking about here, he's referring to Jesus when he says the word. That what John is saying is that Jesus was with God and is God himself, that he was the creator, that he was the beholder of all things, and that there is nothing that can overpower him. Even in the darkness and in the suffering and in the evil that we can see in this life today, nothing is stronger and more powerful than him. And then he continues by saying this a few verses later in verse 9. He says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, talking about Jesus, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. Of the, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Now, what John is doing here is he is recapping what Jesus did when he came, that the one who created the world stepped into the world, was rejected by many of, own, of his own people, yet to all who believe or to all who trust in his name, he gives the privilege of becoming a child of God. And this was a radical concept today, but even in the ancient world, where your, where your connections, where your value was all depended upon your family and your heritage and your lineage and how much money you had and where you are in society and if you were a man or if you were a woman and if you owned land and if you did it. What John is telling is that all of these things, all of the things that you think you can bring are irrelevant, that all people are welcome into God's throne room for those that follow and trust in Jesus. It's not about what you have done or your connections or you trying really hard. It's about him. That's what he's saying. And this is the gospel. Now, you might hear this a lot in churches, so we, we kind of forget how radical, how crazy this is, that the reception into the family of God is not based on what you do, but by trusting in the one who did it for you. It's not based on, hey, I gave enough money this year, or I prayed enough times before I went to bed, or I read the Bible enough times this year, or I gave to this charity, or I didn't do the things. None of these things determine your status before God, that God loves us so much that he came in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our shame. This is who God is, the good news that he loves us and that he redeems us. The good news, as John keeps writing in verse 14, when he then says this, that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, flesh and dwelt among us, literally that's translated that he pitched his tents, like he built a house, that he wasn't here just to check things out and to leave, but he came to reside to make it possible for us to follow and believe and to know the love of God. That The word, the author of the story himself, 
stepped into the story that he created. He was rejected and he was executed, but he knew that this would happen. It wasn't some tragic mistake. It wasn't some tragic accident. It was God's plan for us. And here's what this means. Here is the reality of what this means if this is actually true. That if there's actually a God who not only exists and is our creator, but also loves us as demonstrated by his desire and willingness to come and to redeem us, it means that our lives are actually meaningful. It means that justice and love will win at the end, not because it sounds nice, but because it's objectively true, that our lives do have meaning, that your suffering actually does matter, that your successes, they matter too. That's the good news. Or put another way, the story of Christmas means that you matter. That if a loving God <clears throat> exists <coughs> and cares, then meaning isn't an illusion. It's not brain cells just firing off in your brain that when you die, <coughs> excuse me, it just stops working. It just stops mattering. It means that life actually matters and that you actually have meaning. You know, it's interesting. <coughs> it reminds me, I don't know if you ever like had things in your life where you didn't think it mattered. It's kind of like the opposite of the story I began in the beginning with. And then you realize later it actually does matter. So I think all of us, <coughs> excuse me, man, I feel great. I don't know. <coughs> I'm so excited. I think all of us can relate to this. The older you are, the more you can relate to this. When I was a kid, I remember hearing, like, having, like, going to McDonald's or whatever, and you'd have adults being like, oh, I can't eat that. Like, I just, it makes me feel terrible. Like, I wouldn't eat that. And as a kid, I remember thinking, I felt so bad. Like, I was like, oh, you must, like, be so sad that you're missing out on this delicious hamburger or this, like, these Oreos. Like, I was just like, I felt so bad for them. Like, it doesn't matter what you eat. Well, the older you get, the more you realize Oh, like, you do feel a certain way when you eat things. And I, and, and I don't, I'm only 32, so I'm not, like, that old. But one of the things I remembered is, like, bagel bites. Like, I could, I could just eat those things. And for whatever reason now, like, when I see them, I'm just like, mm. And so, like, a couple weeks ago, Roman, like, our four-year-old was eating a bunch of bagel bites. And he had, like, two or three left. And Christina asked if I wanted them. And I just looked at those, and I was like, No. And there was no part of me that was like, oh, I'm so sad. They're so delicious. Like, I was like, the, how they make me feel, it, it is not worth it, right? I, I slowly started to realize, so actually what you eat does actually matter. And this is good news for us. The good news of the gospel actually matters. It matters. Otherwise, it is, it is just news. And the good news of the gospel means that there is bad news. And the bad news is that Jesus came not because it's a really cool story that makes us feel good, but he came because he had to. He came to save us from our sins, from the judgment that we rightly deserve from a perfect and just God. And often what you may hear is the idea that Jesus is like love and forgiveness. He's the antidote, antidote to the judgmental, wrathful God of the Old Testament. 
But in reality, in the Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul even tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God who dwelt among us. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you see a God who is extremely merciful and loyal and abounding in faithful love. And you see also Jesus is dripping with love and forgiveness. And he also warns about God's judgment again and again. In fact, a couple of examples in Luke chapter 16, he said God's judgment is like fire. In Matthew 22, he says God's judgment is like darkness. In Luke 6, he says God's judgment is like hunger that can't be satisfied. In Luke 16, he says it's like a terrible thirst. Or in Matthew 25, he says it's like being locked out of a wonderful party. And in fact, in Matthew 25, we see that not only is Jesus the one who takes the judgment in our place if we trust in him, but that he is also our judge. And the story of Christmas is that the judge has come to heal the bondage and the weight of sin, and that he is offering to take it all upon himself. The story of Christmas means you matter, but it also means the story of Christmas means your sin matters. It means your sin matters. Now, here's what I know. Whatever you and I think about the word sin, all of us, all of us would agree that none of us live up to even our standards of morality. All of us would say we've done things that even we would say are wrong. So the question then is, what comes of it? What is a God who is actually supposed to be loving and just and perfect supposed to do? Is he not supposed to care? Or is he just not supposed to care about your sin? But everyone else's, he should do something about it. It actually matters. It kind of, I don't know why, but think of it like this way. You know, there are things, if you're married, you, you, you probably can relate to this. If you're not, this is marriage advice, okay? Um, there are things that you, have, you, you, that you care about, your preferences for, and then there are things that you like because they have deep significance to you. And if you ever suggest to your spouse, hey, we should go and do this thing, and it's because you just like it, and they say they don't want to, not a big deal. If they say they don't want to, but it's something that has, meaning, that has a lot of value and meaning to you, then it can kind of hurt you a little bit. And so it's always best to tell your spouse, hey, this thing really matters to me, and then they're more likely to maybe go along with it. So like, for example, um, my kids, so my dad died when I was 19 years old. If you're a part of New City, many of you guys know that story. And one of the things, one of the memories that I have of my dad, great memories of my dad, is we watched Duke basketball all the time. It was a great legacy that he passed on. Love watching people win a lot at stuff. In fact, when I was a kid, we were not from North Carolina. My parents weren't. I remember somebody asking my dad, Roger, why do you like Duke? And he said, because everybody likes to watch a winner. And they won a lot. That's the only reason that he started watching Duke. And so here I am. And so now we have kids. And it is, it is, it is important for me that my kids watch Duke games with me. And so now they're seven and four. Finley, like, I think she just likes to stay up. And Roman likes sports, but he doesn't really understand what's happening. So he gets really excited when, like, Duke scores and not when the other team scores. But he doesn't, he's always asking me what the score is. And I'm like, ah. So, you know, he's up to any, anything over 20 points, he has no idea. Um, I love you, buddy. Anyway, <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. It's, it's significant to me. So when we, we let the kids stay up, unless it's like an extremely late game, they'll be able to stay up and watch at least some of it because it actually matters. And having that conversation is different than it's just a preference for me. And so it happens. And so we, and I say that just to say this, the reason Jesus came is because our sin matters. Your sin matters. Our sin condemns us. That is why he came, because he does not want to leave us in it. The last few verses I'll read, it says this a few verses later in John chapter 1, starting in verse 16. He then says this Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. 
and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Jesus is God who has come. Jesus came to fully reveal to us who God is. And his coming means this, that your life matters and your life has meaning. And my plea to all of us this evening as we enter into these next few days of Christmas time and all the things that is coming up, that we wouldn't allow the comfort of ignorance to keep us from taking our next step. And I don't mean ignorance in like the negative way it's become. I just mean in the neutral, all right, like I'm not sure about this whole God thing. I'm just going to say it doesn't really matter from, from either deciding what that, the implications of what that actually means. Either God loves us and he cares or you and I are staring in the face of nothingness. In other words, here's how I'll end. Here's what we also see. The story of Christmas means that you matter to God. Not just that life has meaning and not just that we have a creator and not just that life matters in general, but you specifically and individually. Listen, one of my favorite realities of Christmas and the Christmas story is that even if you have suffering and doubt and questions in your life, but hear me, all of us do, even me. Even if you are going through things and you have no idea why God would allow it, and from our human perspective, there's no thing we can even understand that would make sense of it. Here's what we do know. It isn't because God doesn't care. Because if God didn't care, he wouldn't have come. That's what Christmas reminds us of. If God didn't care, he would not have come. And so listen, I know these next few days are maybe lots of emotions for us. There's going to be excitement. There can be some sadness. There can be some loneliness. There can be some depression. There can be some traditions we look forward to and some things that cause us pain. And I just would, I plead that you would leave here knowing this, that you matter to God. That Jesus came because you matter to him. And no matter who you are or what you've done or what this year has looked like for you, if you've never followed Jesus or you've fallen away for Jesus or you've been following him, but it's been a struggle that you need to know that he loves you right where you are. He's not asking you to do anything first, but to receive his love and allow him to change your life. The story of Christmas means that you matter to God. Now, um, our mission here at New City Church is to help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. We love the community that we have here. Again, if you're new, we'd love to meet with you and, and, and chat with you a little bit. And one of the, the joys as a pastor is I get to see all the time, have conversations all the time about the impact that you guys are making in one another's lives. And so what I want to do as I end today is to share with you, allow you to see the impact that you're making in each other's lives and how when we love Jesus together and our faults and our falling shortness, that we can provide love and hope for one another in the same way that Jesus has provided love and hope for us. And so before we sing, a few more songs celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, or the, the birth of Jesus, which leads us to the resurrection of Jesus, the reality that all of us matter because God loves you. Would you turn your attention to the screen and see how the difference that you are making in a couple's lives in our story in our church? I'm Tim Creesman. This is my wife, Caroline Creesman, and we've been married for five months. I first heard, out, heard about New City because of a competition, actually, that Dylan and Adam Pickard were doing. They were trying to get 125 people to come to the church. This was, I think, four years ago, about. If they got 125 people to come, they would both get in those giant inflatable sumo suits and <laughs> battle each other. Um, but it got me to come to New City, so it worked for one person at least. <laughs> 
I started coming to New City because of Tim. I loved the other church I was going to, um, but was just naturally getting discipled already by Christina and by other people um, at New City as well. So it just made more sense to come to New City. I was more connected there anyway. I remember the first time I came to New City, Christina came up to me immediately and she was just like, hey, who are you? Like, how long have you heard about us? Or like, who did you hear about us from? Um, like, how long have you lived in the area? Just immediately all of these questions that made me feel really, really noticed and just welcomed like immediately. And I was like, wow, this, I haven't felt like this in a church in a long time. A similar story of why I initially felt like welcome to New City. There's a good balance at New City of sort of sharing the gospel in a way that somebody who didn't know Jesus could sort of latch onto and follow, but also digging in and like staying true to the scriptures and like learning something that a, somebody who's been a believer for a long time could still like glean something from. One of my favorite memories was a while ago, uh, there was a guy who used to be on the worship team, Sam Jakes. Every once in a while he would lead um, like worship nights. That kind of environment I just love. Just tons of worship songs and people would like as they felt led just come up and read scriptures or pray or say something and everybody just felt so free and relaxed to worship anywhere they wanted to worship uh, without like the pressure or the breathlessness of a Sunday morning sometimes and um, it was a really beautiful time. I still hang on to that memory. I remember a lot of times just staying late on a Wednesday night after rehearsal just helping Kevin with odds and ends, just whether it's lighting or um, anything like that. There's just been a lot of like bonding moments during those times. Um, if you come to New City and you're new, you won't go unnoticed. Like somebody's gonna notice that you're new. Somebody's gonna come up and talk to you. Um, it's not a church where you can slip in and slip out of, um, especially if you like are new. It's not a tiny church, but it's not so big that like people will notice and, and want to get to know you. The thing I love most about New City is would have to be the music. <laughs> That's not because I'm on the worship team. <laughs> no. Um, honestly, it's just because I love playing music, and that's something that New City has really helped me grow in. Um, before New City, I would not be caught dead on a stage with an instrument. I hated performing in front of people. I, I had piano lessons as a kid, but it was the rehearsals that made me despise piano and never want to play music ever. Um, and the auditions and all of that stuff was just too much. But here at New City, that's really become a love of mine, just getting to, to play an instrument and getting to worship with people and people in a band. One thing that I love about New City is just the community of women and how I know ladies who are younger than me and um, can, you know, have sort of find friends in them and people who, ladies who are the same age as me and ladies who are older than me. And I could say that in all different ages, people who are like my genuine friends. It's been such a rich gift that um, to get to know ladies who are older than me and who can be mentors and maybe potentially I can like mentor or have something to share with ladies who are younger than me, the same age. I mean, I learned from anybody, no matter how old they are. But that's been a huge gift at New City. I would say that I got involved with the New City around a lot of um, like very pivotal moments of my life. So like I graduated college, like and then like right in the midst of getting to know like New City Church. And so, and then also like engagement and marriage um, was sort of like mentored by Dylan and Christina and others in the church uh, during that period. And then now being pregnant um, and 
gonna have we're gonna have our first child and become parents and like people at New City Church like in our community group and um, and other people such as like Jesse and Maddie are like walking with us through that so I guess maybe growing in in prayer and asking for help um, and knowing that one way to love people is to ask for their help and lean on them. So Christmas is very significant to me. It was actually Christmas Day that I first decided to follow Jesus 10 years ago, um, or 15 years ago actually, I was 10 years old. Um, and I just remember the pastor at the time was doing a sermon on guilt, which looking back is an interesting sermon to do on Christmas Day, but for whatever reason. Um, and I remember a line that he was saying like, um, you know, as Christians, we don't have to feel guilty. Like Christ has already taken on, um, taken on our sin for us. And I just remember wondering, like, why do I feel guilty about everything all the time? Like mm -hmm. something's not right. And so, I distinctly remember coming back home um, and just asking my parents. And like, I was actually I was in tears because I was like, why am I feeling this way? And they um, sat me down before I had to like delay Christmas opening. But yeah, I, I just remember sitting down on a couch talking to my parents and they explained everything to me and that was the tipping point where I really accepted Christ into my heart um, and decided to commit my life to Him. This year, I feel like Chris, the part of Christmas that is the most significant to me is just thinking about Mary and I don't know, just the fact that she was so young and not even married yet and then God's like okay like you're gonna be pregnant and I'm sure she just wasn't ready and and like there's so much so many changes that her body had to go through and so much the angel told her that must have been so confusing to her and having a child is just like oh it's so surprising and wow I didn't expect a baby but that's okay I'm ready uh, but but yeah it's like it's a it's a wonderful surprise and it's interesting to know that for her it was a wonderful surprise too. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas New, New City. City and a Happy New Year. And a Happy New Year. Can't forget that.